Listener Production. This week on the show, another intriguing conversation. Disaster victim identification is one of the most complex but rewarding fields of forensics. Dr David Ranson is a forensic pathologist who doesn't just determine cause and manner of death. Today we'll be talking to David about the work he does in the field of disasters, whether they're natural disasters like tsunamis or man-made situations like mass grave excavations and, as you'll hear, something like the MH17 flight that was brought down over Ukraine. From a medical perspective, people think forensic pathology being very cold and distant and you deal with dead people, not living people, and actually it's not true at all. The people you deal with are the living. All of his work is crucial to both prosecutions and convictions, but it's also key to identifying victims and bringing closure to families. Here's Dr David Ranson with the first case he ever worked on. I was a senior medical student and I had done my um, Bachelor of Medical Sciences with an intercalated degree during my medical course with a uh, pathologist who happened also to be the home office pathologist for that area in the United Kingdom. He rang me up one day and said, we've got this case of possible homicide. It's out at this remote sort of country area. I'll meet you there, sort of thing. So I got in my car, which was, I think, a battered old Austin A35, and I uh, arrived at this house, and there were a few police cars outside and an ambulance and so on, and I said I was the medical student with Dr. So-and-so, and they um, said, oh, yes, come in, come in. And so I wandered in. They sent me into the room with the body, and there's nobody else there at the stage. They're all waiting for him to arrive. And I'm standing there literally on my own in the room with a dead woman lying on the hearth rug with obviously signs of injury and things like that and sort of saying, well, they're sort of expecting me to do something, but I'm not going to do anything because I'm waiting for my boss. <laughs> so, um, but it was it was a very interesting first experience like that because when he arrived, I was able to watch exactly how he pursued the investigation, but also how he interacted with the police and the ambulance officers and, and so on, because that's absolutely critical. They're the people who can give you that background information, which you will never get unless you talk to them the right way and support their investigation process. It was just fascinating. And then I'd sort of have my clipboard and he would dictate to me and I'd write the notes down and and then that would translate into the mortuary. And um, again, I would take notes for him. He might say, oh, could you dissect out this for me? And I would dissect out, you know, the aorta where there was a stab wound or something like that. And um, there was, you know, it was a really interesting lead in to engaging in pathology practice once I'd done my clinical internships and uh, residences and things like that. So you knew your path pretty early in your medical career? In a way, yes, I did. Yes, it was. And I always think that forensic pathology is a bit like the general practice of hospital medicine. I mean, that's really, well, you know, that's what anatomical pathology is. You see specimens, biopsies from just about every medical specialty, whether it's dermatology or, you know, cardiac surgery or neurosurgery or whatever. So you, you cover the full sort of gambit. Yes, you're not involved in treating people, but you are involved in the diseases and pathologies that affect people in almost every discipline of medicine. One of the things that I really found interesting was that you were involved in disaster victim identification. 
Yes, absolutely. It's it's a really um, important area, if you like, because it's it's the area that provides a huge amount of closure for families um, who've lost loved ones in a, in a in a major incident. The inability to find someone who's gone missing and is suspected to be dead in the incident is something that is really challenging for families. It's a horrific limbo to be in. Absolutely, because there's always the nagging doubt at the back of your mind, you know, was the person on the plane or on the boat or or, or whatever? Um, You know, did they just miss it? How do I know? And the fact that you can't be in contact with them doesn't really give you the reassurance. And so giving people, and it is a form of comfort actually, the fact that they know for certain that their loved one has died and you have been able to find them, you've been able to return them to the family, they've been able to hold a proper funeral and to remember them and they are there as a deceased person in that memory event, I think is absolutely critical. And I remember, for example, working in in Kosovo where um, we were dealing with um, mass graves and uh, in, in the armed conflict there. And I remember... On one occasion, there was, we were in a hospital mortuary doing some of this work, and one of the nurses just walked into the unit and said, I think you've got my brother. And this nurse and her brother had, had lost their parents. She had looked after this younger boy for many, many years, and then in, in the conflict, he went missing and was believed to be killed and buried in a particular place, and we were dealing with that particular burial and I remember the sort of the policing groups were saying, well, you know, we can't really have her here. You know, I'm sorry, this will be done officially later on. And then we just waited until the police went off for lunch and then we just got her in quickly and found where her brother was and just sat with her, with her brother. And that was enough for her. That was enough for her. You know, from a medical perspective, people think about, you know, forensic pathology being very cold and distant and you deal with dead people, not living people. And actually, it's not true at all. The people you deal with are the living. The people you deal with are the families, the people who've got a loss. And often they feel guilt. An enormous amount of family members just feel guilt around death. Could I have done anything more? What really happened? Was it something I did or said or didn't encourage or did encourage? And actually, you know, setting the record straight. And that's what forensic pathology does in these sort of international events when there's been horrors and atrocities. We set the record straight with a scientific evidence-based approach. So you could have all these rumours going on, but actually, once you could get someone who's independent of the process coming and say, well, actually, I can tell you this didn't happen, or I think this did happen, that can be immensely powerful and indeed can lead to situations which help people come to terms with violence and also encourage peace. Because if you understand what really went on, then you have a certainty, whereas the rumour mill and the vitriol between different groups that's created because of mystique and false rumours and things like that can be much more damaging. And usually the truth is a much more powerful weapon in leading to peace and understanding. One of the cases that particularly resonated in my mind that you've worked on, it's not really a case, it's actually a disaster, Mm. Most Australians remember the Beaumont children of a certain age. Mm. There were three children who went missing yes. in Adelaide. Yeah. They were from the same family. And the suffering that family, the mm. parents went through, not knowing, has been yes. documented. But 
with the MH17 crash, there was a family that lost three children yes. and a grandfather. That's right. Of yes. the children. So yeah. that was one that I wanted to actually talk to you about as an example mm. of what happens, what is the process. So you're sitting at home, you see that there's been a plane crash. Do you have a bag packed? Do you wait for a call? Yeah, so um, this was an airliner that was travelling over Ukraine as part of the its flight path uh, to Australia and um, the... Well, we've recently had both the investigation complete and the criminal trials completed in the Netherlands in relation to the incident. Those reports indicate the plane was hit by, effectively hit by a missile and was brought down. And uh, the area in which the plane crashed was over quite a large area. So there were a number of locations at which there were remains and aircraft debris, property, luggage and things like that. And this was effectively in what was a conflict zone, um, not a war per se, but a conflict zone at that time. And so that made operations on the ground in that area very problematic for police and various investigators. And in the end, it was so unstable at, at that sort of level that they decided to effectively collect remains as they could and bring them back to the Netherlands um, for the more formal forensic, medical and scientific examinations because they, those really have to be undertaken in a safe and stable environment. It's very difficult to do those sorts of things in an unstable environment where there are facilities are limited and which you might be interfered with in, in terms of doing that work. Where... Were you when you got the call and how soon after? And can you tell us how you got involved? Yes, yeah, so we were contacted effectively through Australian Federal Police and Dr Jody Leditschke tends to coordinate a lot of our work in that um, field. So she is the manager of the mortuary at the VIFM and the, all of the technical side of the operations of VIFM and the initial investigations unit for the pathologists and coroners. So she would then liaise with police and work out when they'd be planning to send a team, who they want on that first team. Sometimes you send a preliminary person to do a bit of local briefing on the ground and find out what's going on and then provide some advice back on what you might need. So that came in and initially we were going to go very quickly, but it soon transpired that you know several days would be needed to get everything together and get all the planning done properly. And I think, I can't remember now, but I think it would have been four, five, six days later that we actually left and went. But by that time, we knew exactly where we were going. We knew how we'd be working. We knew what equipment we needed or didn't need because obviously the Netherlands is a very sophisticated forensic environment and they had most of what we would need. So we didn't need to take great kits with us and things like that. So we arrived and uh, we had some preliminary briefings. This is what's happening. This is what the environment's like. This is where you'll be working. And then over the next couple of days, we had meetings with the sort of pathology group and the dental group and so on. So everybody knew pretty much the best way of working and they worked that out in those first few days. And then a couple of days later, we started. Occupational health and safety was a really big thing. So we wanted to make sure that contamination was managed um, so that we, the staff working in that environment will be safe. Um, and those sort of things were put in place. A proper work plan was put in place. 
proper debriefing points were organised for the, all the teams, their own support. So we had ministers and psychological support available in that process. We had designated, you know, rest days. We designated team time off. So all of that stuff was worked so that when you started the work, you could proceed fairly seamlessly and you wouldn't have too many changes that would disrupt the efficient workflow. That sounds like a factory. And it's, it's, it is and it isn't. It is a factory at one level because you do have that conveyor belt approach because it's the only way you can get through the workload. But that's precision. Absolutely. And it means that when you do the job, you know exactly what you're doing and you can get it right. We have a, a bit of an interactive process. Around Australia, um, the different forensic sort of organisations at each state tend to work on a bit of a roster process. So for a couple of months, one of them takes a sort of lead on response. But one of the situations the Institute's been in for some time is because we're a very fairly popular state and there's one centre that deals with everything, it means we're quite a large group. So we're, we're a group of you know, 14, 15 pathologists or whatever, and there's 14 coroners in the building. <laughs> These are the lawyers, the judges who act uh, who do, uh, do the legal side of the investigation. So we're a big organisation. We're a busy organisation, but if somebody said to us, can you please put a pathologist, a mortuary technical scientist, a dentist, an anthropologist on a plane in four hours or six hours, we could. And we could do it in such a way that others would fill in their work and work a bit, a bit more and longer hours just to, to cover that work for that period of time. And we sort of hold ourselves out that we can do that. That means people having their vaccines up to date and having their passport and all those sorts of things all up to date. We have um, bags, we have kits, we have backpacks in the mortuary area where you can literally just go in there, pick it up, and everything you sort of need, well, you think you're going to need, is, is there ready to go. But the reality, of course, is you almost never have to deploy in that way because things just take longer to organise. And effectively, international events like that are organised through the Australian Federal Police. So there's a, a request to the Australian government. The Australian Federal Police take the lead in the response to that request. They'll find the forensic pathologists they need, the dentists, the anthropologists, and so on. And, you know, we help coordinate a lot of that. But at the end of the day, they're putting together quite a big team. There'll be photographers, there'll be fingerprint experts, there'll be a whole logistics people, um, there'll be IT type people. You know, there's a quite a large team that effectively goes. And you roll up at wherever you're going, and there'll be a mortuary area that you that's being planned or uh, to work in. There'll be all the local colleagues from that country that you hopefully know, and quite often we do know because it's quite a small group internationally who do this sort of work. So we tend to know them and that's, you know, a, a very good starting place. And then you don't just dive straight into the pathology work. The really important thing are those first couple of days where you plan the way you are going to work, plan how the mortuary needs to be set out, plan the process of doing the work because getting it right from the beginning is crucial because what you don't want to do is say halfway through the investigation and halfway through the examination of what may be 50, 100, 200 people, or oh, we really should have collected this information as well. So let's go back to the beginning and do them all again with this extra information. That doesn't help anyone. So that process of thinking first, what do we really need to do 
is critical in that process. And that is individual to that particular disaster? Absolutely, because you, if you were trying to collect the information on the Interpol standard forms for post-mortem and anti-mortem records collection, and you did that on every single disaster in exactly the same way, you'd collect a lot of irrelevant information or unhelpful information, which would take time and prolong the phase where the family don't know what happened. So we've got to select exactly the right amount of material to collect the right sort of data. And the other thing, of course, is you've got to think about what is the nature of the disaster you're dealing with. Is this a man-made disaster? Is this a natural disaster? Because if it's a man-made disaster and there's potential criminality, not only have you got to do the identification work, but you've got to collect the data in such a way that it would support the legal process of criminal charges happening sometime in the future. Because if you don't collect the evidence in a stable, reliable way, such that it meets the needs of a court, and that's the forensic bit, then effectively information you collect may be fine for identification, but may not be admissible in a court in a criminal proceeding. So you've got to keep these two things in mind all the time. It's a bit like in clinical forensic medicine, when you're dealing, say, with the sexual assault case, and you're balancing the needs of the justice system, the evidence, the samples, the characteristics of injuries, together with the needs of the victim as a hurt, injured individual who may need medical care, physical medical care, psychological support and care. And the forensic practitioners caught in this in-between hinterland between clinical service delivery and forensic reliability in terms of interpretation, opinion, and specimen collection. And that's the dichotomy, the true dichotomy that all forensic practitioners face in the work they do. So in a disaster, is there a, this is not the right probably way of phrasing it, but is there a certain degree of compromise in one sense? For example, with an air crash, do you want to know the specific cause of death of every single one of those? Um, look, that's going to be a question that you try to sort out in those preliminary meetings before you just dive straight in. But you're absolutely right. Of course, there's an element of compromise. An individual homicide investigation could take you a day in terms of the autopsy procedures. It could take two or three days, more sometimes in, in very complicated It could just take two hours. It depends totally on what the findings are. If you spent two hours or two days in a disaster victim identification, you'd be there for months and months and months just dealing with 100 people. So, of course, the compromise, but the whole point about it is you compromise within the necessary information you need to gather. What do I need to know about? How do I gather this in a way that's best able to be collected as material without too much damage to the body because I want to return that body to the family. So there's all those considerations as well. And what is strictly necessary? The way the Interpol forms are designed is to, you know, if you were working in a remote area with no technology, doing what's in the forms would help you gather the most. If you're in a high-tech arena where you can do CT scans on every single body, you can take very clean and accurate, tiny, small samples for DNA analysis, 
you can get simple fingerprint collections without too much disruption, then you, you can focus on a few primary identifiers and not have to worry about so much of the rest because you can actually go back and review things through the CT scans or in photographs and things like that. So that, in a sense, is what you ask a specialist to do, isn't it? You ask a specialist to apply their expertise to a situation so that they get the most information out of that situation for the least interference. And that's what we're doing in forensic pathology. And we're making that critical decision all the time. Well, one of the things I didn't anticipate when I was reading, um, because you often do think jewellery will identify an engraved wedding ring Mm. or a specific um, setting for an engagement ring or attorney, whatever. One thing that really didn't occur to my naive brain was for something like a plane crash um, in an impoverished area that there could be so much looting and moving of bodies and relocating and especially if someone's trying, well, if there are certain groups who want to remove evidence, destroy evidence, Yes, um, certainly in some of the, the military sort of situations and armed conflict situations, that can certainly happen. And, you know, looting does occur. Um, and there's a whole variety of offences, if you like, criminal type offences that go on in those settings, including, you know, um, rape as a form of torture, for example, and things like that. The, these are really critical issues. And of course, um, concealing that then becomes quite important. So people will you know, kill people, put them into mass graves and things like that, try to remove identifying features and so on and so forth. And normally, yes, this does does involve taking property and things like that, which may have other criminal intents, but sometimes there'll be, there'll be mutilation, uh, you know, fingers, hands being taken away, things like that, um, teeth damage and so on. It really depends on the level of knowledge of the people perpetrating the atrocity, to be quite honest. And uh, fortunately, the knowledge base is pretty poor in general, so that we often do find sufficient information to get identification. It just seems to make it so much more difficult for you when you're on this humanitarian, legal, pretty much altruistic mission, to be honest, and then you're being countered by the worst side of humanity and depravity. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's one of the features about forensic work in general is that you see a very different side of life. You know, the average person in a street, maybe there is some horrible um, murder on the street, let's say, in a house, and they all, you see them on television, they say, gosh, it's such a nice quiet street, we had, no, you know, no idea, blah, 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 this has changed the whole nature of the neighbourhood. You know, but we're seeing those things every week in a strange way, it's normalised. However, even though it may be normalised in relation to your work, the individual story for the family, for the neighbours, for the friends, must never, ever be forgotten. And that, I think, is the challenge for busy practitioners. I'm sure it's a true in clinical practice as well. You know, if you are doing cold surgery, just pick out of the blue, you know, hip replacements or whatever it is, it's very easy to get in, well, I've got a waiting list of X and I've got to get through these number of people and so on. But every patient's actually different. And it's a real challenge in a busy work practice to give that individuality to patients. And most doctors do, and they're, they're, they're good at it. Some don't, and they're not as good at it. Um, you know, I'm sure you would agree. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so you have this sort of dichotomy. And for forensic pathologists, because we've got a deceased person in front of us and the family 
may not be that connected at that time, we've got to remember what those families' needs and expectations might be because we're going to confront those in one week, 10 weeks, five, six months' time. And we've got to have that level of engagement about that person. So you don't just describe the the injuries and tattoos and things like that. You also talk about the person, you know, um, an adult person with the right coloured hair and things like that, so that they see you making the, what I call the social connection with that person. And yet during your work, you don't want to have too strong a social connection. It's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things I get asked a lot is, how do you deal with doing a death investigation autopsy on a child or a baby? It must be so hard. And the answer is generally no, it's not hard, except in certain situations. And the certain situation for me, and it may be just personal to me, is if that child or infant is the same age as my child or infant, then it comes home. If it's a different age, different sort of structure or whatever, then it's a piece of work that I'm going to do. I'm going to do it in a way that's as absolutely respectful to that individual and to the family and so on, but I don't necessarily get so emotionally connected at that level. And I'm sure it's the same in clinical medicine as well. It's hard when you've got a child with you know, an illness and so on, which is exactly the same age as your child. But I think the difference in clinical medicine, from my point of view, was that you were engaged with this person and you had a, you had to have a relationship with this person to treat them and for them to come to you and interact with you. So clinically, you're dealing with the patient, with the patient's own concerns, their feelings, their symptomatology, and sometimes there's something you can do in that space. Sometimes explaining to a patient what's really going on can also be very comforting. It sounds strange, but I remember working in the children's hospital and we'd have young kids, 8, 9, 10, 12, coming in with their various cancers and we would bring them to the path lab and show them their tumours under the microscope. Interesting. And really the interesting thing was they became engaged not in a threatening way. It wasn't about pain. It wasn't about being treated and all the difficulties that come with treatment. This was seeing what's inside them. And they were fascinated and not really seriously confronted or or really hurt by that. In fact, I think they were supported because they understood now what it was. It's not some monster. It's not some yeah. sort of ethereal thing that's torturing their body. That's right. There are so many challenges that I was looking at in something like a disaster, whether it's man-made, say man-made, for example, or in a war zone or disputed territory. You've got so many different variables and challenges, remoteness, accessibility, the weather. Absolutely. And also contamination. So you get a situation, um, for example, in MH17, where because of the transportation of the bodies at some point in that chain of transportation someone decided to spray the remains in formaldehyde. Now, that seemed, I suppose, to a layperson a reasonably good idea because it is a preservative of tissues. Unfortunately, it penetrates incredibly slowly. And so really spraying bodies with fixative like that to, pre to preserve them is completely a waste of time. You need to embalm them properly if you're going to do that to preserve the bodies. 
the problem was now is we had hundreds of contaminated bodies and body parts. So we finished up having to work in full face masks and a whole variety of stuff to, just to protect ourselves. And that is adds another element to the, the challenge of working in that environment. So you're wearing a heavy full face mask with filters, you know, and you're bending over and working a surgical type operation then the weight on your head means you get neck pain. You get, you know, these are, so how long do you work? If you're wearing a full mask situation, then how do you get your glasses <laughs> yeah, to, to work unless you've got the special inserts? I'm reasonably short-sighted. I'm not terribly short-sighted. So I was actually not too bad because as long as I stay within about a couple of feet of the things I was looking at, I could see very, very clearly. But if I looked up, I couldn't see who was coming towards me or what, what the time was on the clock on the wall. And, um, you know, I've, and I've been in that situation before in forensic scenes which have been contaminated. Uh, I remember I once worked with a much older forensic scientist and he was at the scene with me and I'm short-sighted. He was long-sighted. And between the two of us, we managed to sort everything out. But once you get into that full protective gear, you know, you, you are a bit isolated. You, you, you are separated from what's around you. Working, for example, in Thailand in the Pacific tsunami issue, initially there were no... It's no air conditioning. There were fans duct taped to the ceiling, blowing uh, air just to get airflow in, in in the area. And it is actually physically challenging. And you and one of the things you have to do as a doctor in that environment, and you know, it might be a pathologist doing autopsies, but you're still a doctor in that environment, is you've got to keep your eye on everyone around you because if someone's getting dehydrated or they're starting to flake a bit and and not quite on on the ball for things. Maybe that's time to down tools. Maybe that's say, right, we're going to take a break. We're going to do that and make sure that your team stays safe because there's no point in gathering poor quality information. You might as well have just taken that break, even if it extends the day by another hour or something. Better to do that than have to go back the next day and redo some of the work. For something like a plane crash, there's a very wide field of evidence and depending on if the plane has crashed or exploded midair, all of those things. Sure, yeah. Presumably, while people are collecting deceased remains, other people are trying to find out identifying information. Mm. So what sort of information yeah. are they seeking from families or suspected family members? Yeah, you, you've got this dichotomy, haven't you, between the forensic investigation, what's happened, and then the identification. And in some instances, like in MemH17, there was quite a clear separation. We had a separate team, in fact, working on the forensic analysis of what had happened, and another whole larger team working on the identification of the deceased people. And the two were kept quite separate because one group would be given, going to court to give forensic evidence in any trial, and the other group were there basically on a humanitarian basis to help return the deceased to their families. And that, that process can be integrated, but sometimes you want to keep it very, very separate. So within identification, the work is looking for what we call primary identifiers and secondary identifiers. Now, primary identifiers are, you know, things like fingerprints and DNA and, and dental these are really good. If you just had one of them, you've probably got enough to make an identification. Secondary identifiers are things which are not necessarily 100% unique to a particular individual, but they add weight to an identification. And so they may be position of scars on the body. Has the person had their appendix out? 
lots of people have their appendix out, but the fact that this person with these other things also had their appendix out and the missing person had their appendix out, it just helps to add to the weight of the information. You might well look for uh, particular diseases a person has got, for example, or you might look at, um, from an orthopaedic point of view, maybe they had a fracture and they've had a plate put in and that plate may have a serial number. That serial number relate back to the, the operation and so on. So all of those sorts of implanted devices can be really useful for identification. But a lot of people will have a plate in a particular place and the serial number may not be unique to the individual. It may be unique to a, a month's worth of um, that product being delivered to a particular hospital. So you, uh, it, it's not actually precise information identification, but it's very powerfully supportive. And then you have the weaker information, which is things like wallets and watches and rings and things like that because you know people on holiday may not have the same watch they wear every day they may be wearing different jewelry they may have different clothing clothing they bought while they're on holiday for example the family don't know about a new tattoo that's right new tattoo absolute new hairstyle things like that so those are really important to document but at the same time they're not going to be an excluder you're not going to use that as an excluder whereas you know someone who's got whole set of bottom teeth missing or whatever, that's going to be a pretty good excluder if it turns out that, you know, the person you've got doesn't fit what what, what you imagine. So we've got those sort of things. So the primary identifiers are critical. The secondary identifiers and then the more remote ones, the property type things are, you know, quite useful, but they're not specific enough to make a call on the identification. I mean, there was a famous... Um, channel disaster in Europe with the, I think, the Herald of Free Enterprise, where the um, the ferry um, flooded. And, you know, there were a lot of coaches and things like that and the car ferry and so on. And, you know, one of the, the driver and the courier for the company had everybody's passport in her bag. Um, so you've lost all of that information as to who, who had that particular passport. And you often find where debris is scattered over an area, somebody might uh, foolishly walk into the scene and gather all the passports up. Whereas, in fact, what you don't do, you don't do that sort of thing at the scene. You actually log and identify every single object of forensic significance in relation to a grid which you put over the whole of that scene. You identify every grid, every body part, every piece of information like luggage, property and jewellery documents and things like exactly where it is because even if it's not directly on the person in their clothing it might well be relevant that it's lying near a group of people or something like that so that precision is really critical and it's got a lot easier these days i mean one of the new technologies like drones are really changing that because you can actually go over now and use gps and put virtual grids down and then use that to work out where all these items are in, in a primary mass disaster scene. So then what happens? You've done your work. How long before people are identified, before you get DNA identification in return? Um, that can be quite quick these days. So DNA results um, will often be available within three or four days, maybe in some of the modern techniques, even quicker than that. However, just because you've got a DNA result doesn't mean to say you have necessarily dealt with the whole identification issue. There's still other work that's important to do, and there's still other important forensic information to gather. And sometimes, of course, it may be very important to exclude particular people and 
you may need to hold on to individuals until such time as those exclusions have been made in case a small body fragment turns out to belong to one of the people you think you've identified. So you also need the DNA from the families. Absolutely. So there's a variety of ways you can do that. You can either collect that information from families in that, um, you know, genealogy type assessments of DNA, but you can actually go back sometimes and get the original DNA of the person who's missing. And there's a ways of doing that. So, for example, in there may be that they've got a pathology sample in a in a hospital where they had their appendix out, for example. That may be there. The glass slides might be there in the histology laboratory. You may be able to go to their house and and collect their toothbrush or their hairbrush and, and so on. You may be able to deal with a, a, a child. You may be able to take uh, fingerprints and there may be their toys have got those fingerprints on them. So there's a whole variety of ways in which you can gather original source data as well as DNA data from family members and things like that. So there's this incredible network going on of the potential victims, people who are thought to have been on the the plane, the ferry, whatever. Mm. Um, so you're actually going back to the source, their homes, their families right. as well. Yes, yes. And some cases where you you know, you know, have, a, for example, in a in natural disaster and in plane crashes, quite often a whole family may be killed mm. and they may have no significant relatives you can get samples from. Or their homes destroyed as well. Yeah, that's right. So there's a, a whole variety of different things you may do. I mean, we do have sometimes the old, uh, what we call the Guthrie cards. I don't know if you remember the um, the heel pricks and the tests for those um, inborn errors of metabolism and things like that for clinical chemistry. And a newborn. And, uh, you do it in the newborn. That's right. You take the heel prick. Yes. That's right. Some of those cards still exist in some of the old hospitals back in a store. So it, it may be possible to even get those sometimes. Um, and that gives us a one-to-one blood match with the deceased. That's an incredible, incredible amount of work and effort to go to. Yeah. And, if, you know, sometimes, it, for example, if you think about the dental side of this, you can have, you know, people may go to several dentists over there in recent times and they'll have moulds made, they'll have teeth out, they'll have um, restoration fillings, um, bridge work, crowns. And some of this work can be very um, a useful in identification. And even what I call stylistic issues can crop in here. So, you know, a dentist can look at a, at a crown or whatever and say, you know, that's a very European crown or that's the sort of crown they make in Australia or New Zealand. It's not the ones we commonly see in that way in the UK. So there's even individualization, which may not give you a named individual, but it gives you a little bit of a, of a scope. Of course, with medical tourism these days, of course, people may not have necessarily have had the procedure done in the country they live. Could you please talk us through when you've got, um, like you're using a hanger or you've got, presumably you've got everybody to safety in the sense of as safe as you can be in that environment. I think I was reading about snipers at the air crash site. Yes, that's right. I mean, there was, a, I think the police were um, very significantly challenged in MH17 because they were working in effectively a, a war zone. And um, yes, all of those exigencies, I understand, because I, I wasn't at that scene. We were initially going to be going, but then the situation became um, too difficult. And um, we were then moved back to working in the Netherlands in, in a specially uh, purposed hangar for that. Where did the plane fly from? And why did the Netherlands take control? Um, because the majority of people were from 
the Netherlands. So there were about, I can't remember the number, I think it was about 32 or something Australians there. But there were, I think, a dozen now more nationalities on the plane, but the vast majority were from the Netherlands. So is that who takes ownership? Not necessarily. Um, it is a negotiated issue. So it's a diplomatic decision at the end of the day as to where these things will be dealt with. And obviously, if you have the largest number of people from a particular country and that country is accessible to the investigation process, then um, that's the most convenient thing to do. So I think there was a careful um, negotiation. I mean, something happening in Europe like that, you're not going to, even though there were significant number of Australians, you're not going to bring the entire deceased to Australia, for example. So there's a certain logic in that. And there's obviously complex diplomatic relations that fortunately, as a forensic pathologist, I have nothing to do with. So how do you then go about, you have this um, team from around the world with all different levels of expertise. Do you set up stations specifically for specific yeah. investigation components? Can you explain to us how that works? Yeah, absolutely. So there's different ways of doing this. Um, I mean, essentially, you're going to have stations that are going to try and get the information around the primary identifiers. So uh, fingerprints, dental, DNA collection, and then other secondary information, you know, clothing, jewellery, documents, scars, tattoos, implants. Um, they're all going to be collected. So what you effectively do is you have a, a series of stations with particular experts on them. Now, there's two ways of doing this. Either you leave the experts together in their group in one spot in the mortuary and you bring the deceased to them in sequence, or you have stationary bodies and you have different teams coming in at varying times. Once the dentists are finished, then the fingerprint people arrive. And then once they finish, the next group arrive and, and so on. And it's just that's part of those discussions again before these start, work out exactly what is the best way of dealing with it. So, I've worked in disasters where both methods are used, the stationary body and the teams visiting and doing their work and then leaving that station and going on to another station. And then I've worked in situations where you have the fixed experts in one place and you bring the bodies to them in sequence. Um, for example, in MH17, we had a situation where we had, if you like, examination lines and each examination line would have each of those specialists working at a little station. So you had the first one was dealing with was fingerprints and then moving on, I think, to general property and then moving on to the pathology where we did the smarts and scars and took the DNA samples. And then we moved on to the dentists at the end and they did all their examination. And then the person would be restored and re-encoffined. And during that process, uh, there's a sort of quality assurance checks. So there's individual people whose sole job is to ensure that Everything is done by the per time the person gets to the end of the line. And then you might have three or four or five of those lines operating. Um, they tend to work on a national basis. So you have a line from a team from a particular country. That's useful simply because they know each other and you can actually, they can hand on the case from one to the other in an easy way to deal with. And one of the things that is really important these days is this documentation of everything. So some of that's documented now in IT systems rather than handwritten documents. Um, assume you've got the technology available to you in that particular mortuary. But also, when the deceased um, first arrives in to be examined, there's a, a number of pre-checks that you need to do. Firstly, uh, say someone's opening a, a body bag or a coffin or something that where the body's been brought to, this, to the centre. First, you've got to make sure that you're not, you are dealing with one set of remains. 
because quite commonly, if you have a fragmented set of remains, say from a blom or explosive type incident, when people are collecting body parts, they don't necessarily know individualization of those at that time. So they'll put them together from, say, a grid. What we, we do these days is we, we pre-screen the body bag with a CT scanner. And if you see, you know, three thigh bones, then you say, right, let's split everything up because we've certainly got more than one person here. And it's safer to split them up into lots of the separate components and give them each a number so that later on you can associate those numbers with one individual when you've got the DNA results or something like that. But you don't confuse the picture and miss somebody because you say, well, let's put it all together. Um, so that's sort of pre-screening and pre-numbering. So you get a situation where you might say have, I don't know, 200 dead people, let's say, who've apparently died in an incident. By the time you get them into the mortuary setting, you may have generated five or 600 individualized numbers each of which will have to be identified, even if they come, some of them come from the same person. And then from there, later on, perhaps months later, you may get small fragmented remains brought in later by somebody who's sweeping the scene. And you might have a thousand of those. So then you make a decision, are you going to identify all of those thousand, even though they're tiny fragments? Because that's going to delay a funeral mm. for the family because there's still more to come. Or are you going to say, well, we're going to set a minimum because essentially we can treat those very small fragments of remains with you know, due respect. They will be properly cremated and, and so on and so forth. But really, is the identification of a tiny nondescript fragment of bone something that's going to be of a significant importance to the family in terms of the fact that they've already had a burial, already had a cremation, now they need a second burial or reopening of the grave. and you know, All of those social factors come into play. And at some point, you've just got to take a rational decision of what is sensible to do. Some families will be highly appreciative of that, and some of them will agree perfectly happily with that. Others may find that's a challenge, and they're not comfortable with that. And that's that, um, you know, the important issue about dealing with the family, understanding the family, and why in most of these big incidents, police will appoint officers to be family liaison officers who are not involved in the technicality of the identification, but they work with the family, providing with updated information, getting their wishes known, and giving them timelines and things like that. Because often by now the media have taken over too and are plastering their relatives' faces on front-page newspapers and dramatising as well, with or without their participation. I think from a medical perspective, we're very conscious of that because, you know, privacy is very much built into what we do in medicine. Not necessarily true for all the other groups who might be working in that, and sometimes there are political overtones that, that will also um, want to demonstrate what they're doing. And, and put their narrative out there. Yeah, that's right. And in the narrative from whose perspective? Um, there's always that, you know, there's the narrative of the person telling the story and there's the narrative of those affected by the story and then there's the narrative of the dead. And, you know, that's partly what the Forensic Pathologist is about. You know, how can we speak for the dead? What can we do to give the dead a voice? So how long are you in a setting like a disaster such as the, the plane explosion? How long are you physically in that setting for? 
Um, we tend to try to work around three or four weeks. Um, I think beyond that, the work would be, you know, onerous and you would start to need significant breaks. And what we tend to do is try to rotate people through. So if you've got a long-term project that's going to run over a year, then there'll be teams going in and they'd have an overlap period with the team that's already there for a few days or a week so they can get up to speed on what's going on. And then they'll take over the work for the next, you know, four weeks or something of that order. And then the next team rolls in. So when you're dealing with sort of major armed conflict things where you're dealing with, you know, perhaps thousands of people, then, you know, that's how you're going to be working in a more constrained environment, a boat issue or a plane crash or something like that. Then it may be that you can fit the work within to one of those uh, teams or it may require two teams. We're almost at the end of our time. So thank you very much, David, for joining us. This has been awesome and incredibly fascinating to understand. But is there one piece of evidence you can remember that made a critical difference in identifying somebody? There may not be, but if there is, is there something you can remember? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? All parts of the human body are capable of being useful. Let me tell you of a story I had some years ago now where we um, we had a body brought to us in a suitcase. And um, we put the suitcase through the CT scanner. And inside the suitcase was a deceased person. And before we opened the suitcase, the CT scanner showed us not only what was going on in terms of injuries to this person's head, but also demonstrated a funny substance that was sort of beneath the skin over their, over their cheekbone, over the maxilla on one side. And one of the missing people that this person might have been, and from the police missing persons list, if you like, had been hit in the face, I think, sometime previously and had a, had had a fractured maxilla with a depressed cheekbone and the plastic surgeons had put a silicon implant in just to build up that cheek so that it actually looked relatively normal from, uh, from the front. And um, once we saw that little piece of material under the, it's such an unusual procedure to have done, it pretty much told us it's going to be this person. And then you've got a target person to match all the other things against. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining us. It's been an absolute privilege and it's so great to actually meet the person (laughs) behind the name that I've read so much. (laughs) Well, look, thank you very much. It's been really interesting to be able to tell you what really goes on in these sorts of areas and you know, as a, as a pathologist who's sort of coming to the end of my career in a way, no. what I find I'm doing more and more now is telling the story as an educational activity, not just to doctors and nurses and people that I work with, but also now to tell the community, this is what it's really about and why we have to do what we do. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly.